that makes us officially now uh, we are providing remote education aren't we daniel uh, <laughs> albeit sense, yeah. uh remote education is still a way of delivering the curriculum a way of teaching teaching pupils whose brains doesn't don't suddenly change because they're doing something remotely rather than in the classroom so we need to temper that one a bit what i would say there is that we shouldn't forget some of the advantages of using non-digital methods Obviously, um, digital solutions themselves have many uh, advantages. For example, the uh, great ability to build in uh, interactivity is another one. And um, clearly, what we are going to see going forward is a greater use of those uh, kind of digital tools. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. Hello everybody and welcome to this week's Nailers Natter. This week I am rejoined by Professor Daniel Mers, the Deputy Director, Research and Evaluation at Ofsted. And the conversation today is going to be talking about the Ofsted document, What's Working Well in Remote Education, published on the 11th of January of this year. And I'll be asking Daniel, what is remote education? We'll be tackling some common myths about remote education. We'll also be looking at how we can use remote education to deliver the curriculum, keeping it simple, and we'll be looking at, when adapting the curriculum, how we can focus on those basics. We'll also be taking in evidence and research-based strategies, so feedback, retrieval practice and assessment, and looking at how they are possibly more important than ever. We'll also be talking about the big debate at the moment that is going on about live lessons and why live lessons aren't always the best. Again, we'll be uh, debuting our vinyl sweet choices. So Daniel will be looking into the, the tracks of his years and those that have made him the person that he is today. And I tell you what, listeners, there are some fantastic choices in there. So stay tuned for those. Okay, so over to my conversation with Professor Daniel Mers. And again, this week I am joined by my co-host, Mr. Simon Cox, the director of Blackpool Research School. Okay, so welcome to Nailers Natter and welcome back to Daniel. Thank you for coming on again. Hi, pleasure. And welcome back to our returning co-host, last week's guest, Mr. Simon Cox. Welcome back. Thanks, Phil. Hi, everyone. Okay, so uh, thank you again, Daniel, for doing this tonight. I realise how busy you must be, particularly at the moment. Now, the the, um, document we're going to be discussing tonight is the Ofsted document, What is Working Well in Remote Education. So we'll put links to that uh, in in the show notes. So a nice, gentle, um, we don't need to do an introduction because obviously it's been on before, but a nice, gentle introduction to this document. Could you just tell us a little bit about what you mean by remote education? Okay, um, so... What we try to do is kind of clarify a little bit what we mean by that and make some of the distinctions uh, between remote education, which we see as kind of a broad term, which is any kind of education outside of the classroom. So where the teacher is not in the same location as the pupils and digital remote education or online education, which is where we deliver the remote education through um, digital technologies, internet, etc. Often at the moment, we see those two kind of conflated, and that's not surprising because, of course, um, most of the developments that we have seen have been in digital, but they're not the same thing. Remote education's been 
around for a lot longer than um, any digital solutions have. Think, for example, of uh, education through television in uh, remote rural areas in places like Australia or uh, radio before that. So remote education is a much broader term and obviously can encompass things like using textbooks or worksheets, etc. Can I just follow up there, Daniel? Because I, I, yeah, I'm sure. interested in this because I, I, I often think about what would have happened if if the pandemic had hit back when I was at school in the uh, sort of late eighties, early nineties, and how different mm. education would have looked then. Do you, do you think we've we've gone too far down the digital route, or do you think it's just just a natural? Um, yeah, obviously, you know, we've got more technology than we did then, so that's why we're focusing on that. Or do, or do you think people could have made better use of of, of sort of non technological solutions? So I wouldn't necessarily say we've gone too far. Obviously, um, we've got these uh, solutions now and it's um, and, and they are very versatile and you can do a lot with them. You can also do things quite quickly uh, with a lot of those solutions, which makes them uh, very valuable in this kind of time where we sort of really had to um, work very rapidly to develop remote education. What I would say there is that we shouldn't forget some of the advantages of using non-digital methods. Um, I'm thinking of kind of working sheets and the textbooks, um, things in particular around access and the issue of kind of those um, children who don't uh, have uh, access to a good um, broadband connection, who don't have digital devices, etc. There's also, of course, if you have a good textbook, and I do stress the word good here, you've potentially got a good, nicely sequenced curriculum right there, and that makes it quite easy to align with what um, would otherwise happen in the classroom. So certainly, uh, let's not forget some of the uh, ways that we can use non-digital solutions, but saying that, obviously, um, digital solutions themselves have many uh, Advantages, for example, the uh, great ability to build in uh, interactivity is another one. And um, clearly what we are going to see going forward is a greater use of those uh, kind of digital tools. Fantastic. Thank you. And that, that makes us officially now. Uh, we are providing remote education, aren't we, Daniel? Uh, <laughs> or, or, in a sense, yep. <laughs> well, yes, education. <laughs> absolutely, in a sense, yes. Now, moving on through the documents, and the thing that I liked particularly about it is that you start off, as you have done with previous documents, addressing some common myths. And obviously, a lot of um, discussion and discourse around social media um, mm. and in the news around this. So I like that you shared some common myths around remote education. So would you mind just sharing with listeners uh, some of those with us now? OK, so... Um, what we kind of picked up as some of the myths are firstly that remote education is fundamentally different to other forms of teaching and learning. So it's a totally different and separate things and we have to totally uh, turn around what we do. That's not really true. Uh, remote education is still a way of delivering the curriculum, a way of teaching, teaching pupils whose brains doesn't don't suddenly change because they're doing something remotely rather than in the classroom. So we need to temper that one a bit. The um, second one is that, um, and I mentioned that a little bit earlier, that the best forms of remote education are always digital. Um, Obviously, um, a lot of good remote education is digital, but as I mentioned, there are advantages also to um, using other methods uh, at times as well. The um, 
third one is the issue that um, the most important thing is sometimes seen to be pupils' engagement. But as long as they're engaged, they're taking part in uh, whatever the remote uh, education activity is, then we've kind of nailed it. That, of course, is no more true in remote education than it is in classroom education. Engagement is necessary and important if you don't have your pupils engaged. Obviously, then they're not going to learn, but it's only a precondition. It's not the thing that we want to achieve itself. And then finally, the one that it's probably fair to say uh, has caused a little bit of controversy over uh, recent uh, days is that uh, the best way to deliver remote education is always through live lessons. Now, um, I am certainly not saying that live lessons aren't useful and haven't got significant advantages. They do. But um, there is no evidence that they are always the best way of delivering remote education. And um, that's not just uh, as Ofsted saying that also when you look at the EEF's evidence review, they kind of say there's no real evidence that um, synchronous methods are better than asynchronous ones, for example. So um, we'd say um, look at the context, look at what you're trying to achieve and then decide what kind of mix of live um, lessons, recorded lessons, uh, other follow up activities, etc. are most appropriate for you. It's an interesting one, that last one, isn't it, Daniel? Because I think mm -hmm. obviously some schools are feeling the pressure from parents who understand that, you know, I, I, I'm working from home quite a lot and I've got young children. Yeah. And sometimes there's a pressure there from parents to provide something that's going to keep the children occupied whilst, whilst the parents are trying to work. And, and that's it's trying to weigh that against actually what the evidence says around educationally, what is the right thing. Mm. Uh, and those two things not always and not always tying together. I, I yeah. think it's a really, yeah, I think it's a really timely message from from Ofsted actually, and I think certainly from from what I'm hearing from schools in in the last week, I think I think it came at exactly the right time. Obviously, you said the the EEF report came out last year, and this 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 also says says similar things. Um, are you finding that a school sort of reassured by that message? Yeah, I, that that's certainly the feeling I'm getting. I think um, obviously one of the problems with there are a couple of uh, issues with doing uh, live lessons which are things like um, how easy is it actually to build in flexibility in the interaction there's the kind of whole um, zoom tiredness uh, effect which we know exists and exists amongst both teachers and pupils and the fact that uh, you do actually need to think about things like the length of uh, lessons when you're doing them online as well. We do find that concentration spans are shorter, for example. Uh, an interesting uh, one that you talk about in terms of pressure from parents, that's certainly true. However, I would um, kind of caveat that a little bit with the fact that that is um, not always uh, the case because of course one of the problems that you can have is if you've got uh, two three children at home uh, sharing devices and they simultaneously have to follow live lessons then that's a problem and we did a big uh, survey of parents we surveyed 2,000 parents through um, YouGov and um, around 50% of parents told us that their children were in fact sharing uh, devices, either kind of uh, the one computer or laptop that the parents have, or in uh, less frequently a device that is shared with a sibling. So certainly those are uh, some of the live issues as well. 
of course, again, saying that I'm not saying don't do live lessons. There are advantages to live lessons. They make curriculum alignment easier. They uh, can keep people's attention often easier, not least because you as a teacher, of course, have more direct control of the learning environment. You can see what pupils are doing live, etc. But I say, um, I think our message is uh, look at the kind of suite of different approaches uh, you can have and uh, based on the kind of context and what you want to teach on what uh, you know about your pupils and also the um, well-being and work-life balance of teachers, what is the most appropriate for your particular context. No, excellent stuff. So moving on to the next section now, obviously we're on to our depending on your view our second third fourth lockdown but obviously yes. this this time when we're looking at remote education for more sort of medium to long term so one of the next recommendations that you've put in the document is around you know school leaders looking at and curriculum leaders and phase leaders looking at how to deliver their curriculum because probably during the mm. first time that schools were partially closed it was just a case of adapting pretty quickly and getting some work to students but now we're starting to plan medium to long term and i don't want to get into the debates around when we're going to go back because none of us realistically know what that looks sure. like but what do teachers and leaders need to consider in terms of the way of delivering their curriculum Okay, um, so the first thing there is to try and uh, remember what you already know about um, curriculum. As I said earlier, um, remote education is not a totally different piece. It's still education. It's still about um, delivering a high quality curriculum. So uh, the first thing to think about is how can I try and do that? How can I try and align my remote education curriculum with my planned classroom curriculum? So uh, a lot of the things you need to think about are very similar. How do I carefully sequence? How do I ensure that pupils obtain the building blocks they need to move on to the next step? And so on. Um, however, of course, there are specific issues with um, doing that. It's certainly not necessarily an easy thing. Um, again, um, something we also did was a uh, survey of um, teachers, again through YouGov, and we find that um, teachers have kind of very evenly divided as to whether they think it's easy or difficult to uh, do curriculum alignment when uh, teaching remotely. So. Uh, we find that around 49% um, uh, of teachers actually say that that's either quite or very difficult, but 47% of teachers say it's actually quite or very easy. So we get very kind of mixed views on that one. Um, what we do see quite uh, clearly is that where we sort of want to um, when you need to adapt the curriculum, it's important that we kind of focus on um, on the core, on what is kind of most central. So um, think about things like uh, making sure that pupils already have the key building blocks and knowledge they need and understand that and uh, be aware of kind of offering too much new subject matter at once. Uh, focus on the most important knowledge and most important concepts pupils need to know in that topic or that subject. And um, obviously, becomes all more difficult when we are looking at um, practical activities, when we're looking at vocational subjects. And there, of course, it requires a little bit of thinking about what 
alternatives can be potentially used. What can be done at home, for example? So um, we saw when we did our autumn visits, we saw examples of, um, say, um, students doing uh, beauty therapy, kind of practicing uh, on their uh, siblings, on their family, etc. Um, we saw examples of schools sending materials home or, or working with businesses to send materials to homes that they could work with. Um, we obviously have, uh, for some uh, activities, we may have useful kind of simulations online, etc. Um, so there are things that we can consider. I'm not saying that's always easy and I'm not saying that's always possible. I mean, um, your, uh, your parents may be okay with you uh, practicing a little bit of eyebrow threading on them. They probably, if you're a construction student, don't want you to knock down their kitchen. Um, but where there are uh, alternatives, it's worth uh, considering that even if they're not quite uh, as good as um, the face-to-face -face approach. Um, so those kind of things uh, are the kind of things I would say we're thinking about. And of course, um, make sure that uh, you practice and focus on existing knowledge and skills as well. But I think there's, there's potentially some long-term impacts here as well, isn't there? Mm -hmm. so I was talking to a maths teacher um, earlier today and they've made the decision. They, they usually teach uh, fractions unit in the spring term, but obviously last spring term the children were off and now they're off again. So they've decided to shift fractions elsewhere because they don't want to impact too much on their long-term understanding. But then you start to think, well, actually, if we haven't done fractions, we need to rethink how we teach this and we need to... And, and, yeah. so the, Potentially, even when we go back to school, there's still curriculum planning needed to, to make up for what you missed out or, or, or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And that's obviously going to be um, one of the challenges, not just in this period, but also when we do go back, um, we know quite clearly that what we can do for remote education is not uh, the same and as comprehensive as what we can do in the classroom so there will be gaps there will be things that you've had to move there will be things that um haven't happened at the pace that they normally would have so that's that is absolutely going to be one of the challenges uh, um going forward Great stuff. Now, last time we spoke, we looked at some of the evidence uh, underpinning the inspection framework and other parts. Now, what I really liked, and I liked a lot about this document, Daniel, what I really liked is how you've kind of captured both of those documents together and said to continue doing the things that you maybe were doing in the classroom as much mm -hmm. as reasonably possible when you're delivering these lessons. And, you know, not to share anecdotes from, you know, uh, from where I'm working or where Simon's working or where other people are talking. But when we've gone to live lessons, um, for some reason, the, the pedagogies behind the delivery have kind of changed. And this idea that live learning means you know, a hundred minutes in our case, a mm. hundred minutes of input from the teacher is, as you've said earlier on, you know, leading to things like this Zoom tiredness effect and, mm. and struggling with concentration spans. But you've reiterated in this document, presumably linking on from your work on the uh, evidence summary for the education inspection framework about how feedback, retrieval practice assessment are more important than ever. So why is this and how can teachers prioritise these kind of evidence based practices in remote learning? So uh, the first thing, why it is, there's uh, two reasons for that. Um, first one is that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, what we know about how uh, pupils learn 
doesn't suddenly change because they're doing that learning remotely. So where we know that uh, something like retrieval practice is really important to consolidate uh, knowledge in long-term memory, where we know that feedback is a really effective way of getting people to consider um, how they can progress and so on, those things remain true. Second thing, uh, why I maybe said they may be even more important is that um, in some it's easier not to do them because uh, you mentioned yourself kind of in terms of giving live lessons um, it's obviously a bit more tricky sometimes to get that kind of that kind of interaction you have in a classroom where you're kind of immediately getting uh, questioning and getting feedback and very quickly picking up on the learning is more challenging in a live lesson of course it's also um, where we use recording recorded lessons that's even more so obviously we definitely need to do some follow-up there so when I'm saying it's even more important I'm kind of saying it's it's as important in terms of pupils learning, but it's even more important to think about it because it doesn't come as naturally as it would in a normal in a classroom situation. Um, so you kind of also mentioned then how can we work on that? Um, it's certainly as I mentioned challenging, but there are um, obviously ways that we are doing that um, all the time already and this, this is where um, you do find some kind of nice solutions in the digital uh, platforms that we use, chat rooms, um, you often have kind of interactive touchscreen questioning that you can use, adaptive learning software, quizzes can often be built in quite easily, so there's uh, a number of ways that you can do that and that schools have done that quite successfully I think. Um, it's also worth pointing out there that um, it's kind of quite important to um, ensure that pupils can also interact with each other um, for reasons of learning but also for reasons of kind of social connection, connection to the classroom and also not uh, kind of losing social skills especially for the younger children. So do you think sometimes there might be a nervousness there, Daniel? I'm just thinking of the, sure. um, you, you know, the interaction between between, you know, we hear all these stories, don't we, about, you know, children interact a lot on social media and not always in a positive way. Sure. Do you, think, do you think schools sometimes have a little bit of a nervousness around encouraging that peer interaction um, and, and, and that, that sort of online environment and safeguarding and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's, again, entirely understandable. Uh, we all know that um, things like cyberbullying, etc., exist and are a problem and certainly haven't become less of a problem in lockdown when that's become kind of prime way in which uh, children communicate with each other. And therefore, there are obviously um, safeguarding aspects that we need to take into account. Um, I would say there, though, that that shouldn't kind of be a complete block on us trying to do anything. Um, I mean, there are ways that we can um, check to an extent what's happening. There are ways that we can be a part of some of those discussions. And don't forget, um, we can't control, of course, everything that pupils are doing, but when we are using our kind of uh, learning platforms etc we've got a lot more control of, over that than over what happens when pupils are communicating with each other via I don't know uh, telegraph or um, 
or Snapchat or whatever. So I, I, I wouldn't shy away from it. But obviously, as with everything, we need to risk assess, we need to think about safeguarding. Yeah, I think they're really interesting points there, Daniel, in terms of, you know, um, so I may, I may have to cut this part, but I'm just kind of uh, picking your brains while we're here. So myself as, as DSL in school, it's quite it's it's really reassuring to hear you say, you know, that that shouldn't be a, a barrier or a bar on trying to do these things. So, mm. you know, for example, I'm sure Simon's the same uh, at his school. But, you know, we have kind of a policy now where any behaviours online can be recorded and we have the facility yeah. and the ability to drop into every lesson that's going on, whether that be live or, you know, because obviously we're registering all the students to safeguard all of that every single lesson. Course, so, yeah. you know, it's, rather than frustrating any innovation, you know, for fear of safeguarding, it's almost, well, as long as you've got the procedures, the protocols and the risk assessments in place, then, you know, try and expand and, and push the boundaries a little bit with this because that interaction is so important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely agree with that, and um, yeah, and and that's a good example of kind of how you can do it and still be safe. Okay, so what we'll get into now is the next bit about engagement. Now, again, you know, talking on behalf of, of teachers, and we do speak to a lot of teachers. You know, this idea of engagement, and you have touched on it earlier on, but we've spent a lot of time around discussions around how can we get our students engaged, and, and you yeah. rightly drew parallels with how you can do that in the classroom under normal circumstances but this is only the start so should we mm -hmm. be focusing on entertaining and engaging lessons to ensure good attendance for one side of it and you know are live lessons in that aspect are they the gold standard so um so the first thing to say is that obviously engagement matters and we do of course have a challenge there uh, we know that it's harder to engage mot and motivate pupils remotely. And uh, when we did a survey of parents, that was kind of thing that they were most concerned about. How can I motivate my kids to actually do this, to actually take part in the lessons, etc. And um, that is then one of the areas we do have a bit of an advantage of the live lessons in in the sense of the uh, you being present as a teacher, you having uh, you've been able to see them throw that web. So obviously you don't really necessarily um, have that much, that easy way of motivating them when um, they say doing something coded or whatever. So uh, making things engaging. Um, yes, that's a good thing, but I, you can hear the kind of pause in my voice there um, because what that shouldn't mean is that that's kind of the the whole focus of what we do and, this, and that we kind of say as long as we make it fun so pupils are um watching take part that's uh, all we need because of course um sometimes the activities that we can try and do to make things engaging may actually detract from the learning and may not actually contribute to that so we need to think carefully about what we do so of course we want to do things like um alternate as an activity to give a bit of variation, build in rewards and incentives, etc. Um, to try and engage as much as possible. But the engagement shouldn't be the thing that comes first, shouldn't be the thing that comes in the way of the learning. And, so, and sometimes what we can see with um, um, just with digital platforms, but actually we all see it in textbooks, we all see it in worksheets, is that we can put a whole lot of um extraneous stuff in there which kind of makes it look pretty makes it look active but actually actively detracts from the content that we are wanting to cover from the skills that we are wanting to develop so um so there's kind of a trade-off 
there. What I would uh, also say is um, we need to be a little bit realistic here as well. Sometimes um, we kind of talk about, oh, um, look at how amazingly engaging things like computer games are. And can we just not make our lessons like a uh, computer game and as engaging as that? Well, I mean, I would say certainly there are things we can learn from that in terms of how we structure rewards, etc. But um, let's not forget that um, the production budget for something like um, Cyberpunk 2077 is something like $300 million. That's a little bit more than uh, what you have to spend on your uh, geography lesson. So uh, we are not going to sort of achieve similar things with that. Um, another thing to take into account when you're looking at engagement is engagement is actually not just something that comes from the teaching or, or comes from uh, what happens uh in the activity but engagement um is also a social thing so where people feel part of a community like um like their school then they are more likely to engage they're more likely to also feel that kind of peer pressure to do uh to take part and things like that so doing whole school activities digital assemblies whole school feedback etc to help people feel part of the community um is really useful in that respect as well um, to sort of compensate for some of the lack of that uh, of those things that you obviously would get with uh, being at home otherwise. That, that's really interesting. Uh, one of the things that's worked really well for us as a school is is uh, live form time. So uh, tw not every morning, but twice a week. And mm -hmm. I think it's for that reason that you just say there is it's that community feel. Um, it, it's being part of something. It's, it's trying to. Uh, in some way replicate that sort of school feeling uh, that obviously you don't get so much remotely and listening to what you're saying there I mean I mean a lot of what you're saying there is is exactly the same as it would be in school isn't it you know sure. it, the, the content is important and we shouldn't be putting sure. engagement over content you're always going to have some students that aren't there you know we're, you know <laughs> we have persistently absent students but we also have sure. even when we have them all in the room there's going to be ones who are t whose attention is drifting a little it's yep. not going to be any different to that remotely you know I, th I think like you say we've got to be realistic here um and, and we've got to put all the things in place that we know are likely to make a difference but but ultimately you know if, if somebody does daydream for a couple of minutes there's not a huge amount you know that, that, that we can do about it really is there yeah true yeah i mean um in many cases it's going to be quite hard to know <laughs> yeah 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 okay so just last a uh, couple of questions daniel if we might do so mm -hmm. i mean I, I mean speaking to you tonight i've already written you know a page of notes on top of the fact that i've read the documents already and obviously we're, we were big fans of the evidence summary that you did previously for the uh, inspection framework but this is really really good to get that dialogue going and, and you've mentioned a few great examples from the visits that that obviously Ofsted have undertaken in this period and that mm. sounds really positive really supportive and really about sharing best practice so um i know you've you've kind of crystallized that into the document that you've put out now but is there any other plans to release a document of kind of sharing best practice with what these inspections uh, have found um so uh, obviously the document that we brought out is kind of a brief summary of uh what we found from quite a range of activities that we've been um undertaking over the last six months um Part of that is the visits we did in the autumn term, where obviously we asked about remote learning and we've got data on that. There, we also uh, did a 
um, quick literature review. We did a series of interviews with kind of experts on remote learning. We um, did the uh, survey. We did the two survey surveys of a thousand uh, teachers and two thousand parents. We did qualitative follow-up interviews um, after those surveys, and we also conducted a series of uh, visits to uh, schools that were kind of identified to us as being particularly invested in remote education. Uh, what are we going to do with all that? Um, not just this document, but we are looking to publish a full report on uh, which gives a lot more detail on everything we found from those different activities. Um, team is working on that at the moment and we hope to publish that in the coming weeks. OK, so Daniel, thank you very much again for the interview and thank you for uh, agreeing to take part in the next section, which we still haven't got a working title for, <laughs> um, which is kind of looking a little bit more in depth at our uh, guests in terms of their influences uh, musically, because as we said, Simon and I are huge music fans. Now, those of you that follow you on Twitter, and a lot of people do, will be across the fact that you're quite the music fan as well, and you have uh, released uh, tweets around musical choices. So would you be yep. able to share a little bit uh, of that with us? So do you want to talk us through a couple of tracks that have kind of influenced you whether it be growing up or in in your work at the moment okay um so uh maybe okay i'll go back to kind of growing up and kind of music that influenced me and i think for everybody obviously a big formative time is when you're kind of a teenager that's when you often start to kind of really form your musical taste um I was uh, in my early teenage years uh, a teenage goth. Uh, that's kind of where I kind of started off. And um, the band that was I was pretty obsessed with at the time was the Sisters of Mercy. Uh, not a surprising choice for um, a kind of 80s goth sound. Um, and the track that I used to constantly be playing was a track called Alice. Um, that where does that come from? Um, actually, it came from uh, my father taking me to a music festival and a free music festival in Brussels and Sisters of Mercy were one of the bands playing there and that, they just totally wowed me. And that's kind of, I guess, my starting point of the sort of darker world of music. Superb. And um, for me and Simon, uh, formed in a, the the best year ever, uh, 1977, <laughs> the uh, the Sisters of Mercy. So they're a little little bit of a fact I've just got off Wikipedia. So that's great. <laughs> All the best things were formed in 1977. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Simon, do you want to ask about the second track, and then we obviously Daniel will we'll let you go. I promise. No problems. Yeah, Daniel. So, 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 thanks for sharing your first one. So, um, do you have another chat that you'd like to share from your, uh, from your, from your, either yeah, from, sure. you or from your professional career? Okay. So, um, so, um, one track that I can particularly remember because it sort of influence quite a lot of because uh, it was on the radio when I got news that sort of influenced my future trajectory. So I was an undergraduate student and I was doing my um, 
my final uh, year exams and um, I was listening to a track uh, by a fantastic band, uh, English band Paradise Lost uh, called As I Die and at the end, as the track finishes, the DJ said, uh, we have a breaking news item. The Belgian Minister of Defence has just announced the end of military conscription. Um, and that and that left me with, and that was going to happen uh, after the next 12 months. So that left me with a simple choice. I could either be one of the very last uh, people who went into the Belgian army as a conscript, or I could do a master's instead. Um, I decided that uh, doing a master's would probably be a bit more useful for me, and it's probably fair to say that that's kind of the start of going on into kind of um, higher education from the master's, then came PhD, etc. So that was, I guess, uh, that's a song I very much associate with kind of um, the turning point in what I ended up doing. <laughs> And that's a, so, so that is literally a life-changing moment. It was well, yeah. <laughs> exactly why we put this section in oh thank you so much daniel for that is there anything that you're currently listening to that you could recommend and i'm sure that uh, like simon and i you're a vinyl connoisseur as well you like to have uh, or just say you are if you're not and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> is there anything that you're listening to uh, on the turntable at the moment um so yeah so a band that i've um, been enjoying quite a lot uh, recently um, is called um, Ignea, I-G-N-E-A, and they're a Ukrainian um, kind of symphonic metal band. Um, really, um, I've, I've, I really like uh, the combination of kind of heaviness and melody that they're achieving. Uh, if you like um, kind of physical, copies uh, vinyl, um, then they have very nicely um, designed products as well. Very nice uh, sleeve art um, that comes with a with a book explaining the lyrics and stuff like that. So that's when I've been uh, listening to quite a lot um, over the last couple of weeks, actually. Not not so well known, but definitely worth listening. Uh, it's for for the kind of stuff I listen to. It's um, quite a, um, an accessible one. Fantastic. And again, that's exactly why we do this. So based on uh, Simon's choices last week, I've been listening to Apex Twin most of the week. So oh, I'm definitely going to be looking at um, some of these that you've been talking about. Daniel, I just want to say thank you so much again for your time. And we really appreciate it. We know how busy you are. And, and just on behalf of us, you know, we, we are really benefiting and enjoying the documents that you're putting out there because it, it cuts through a lot of the discussion in the staff room. 
where people, you know, rightly so, because people are interested and they go to Twitter and they go to other places and this is best, that's best, we should be doing this, that's how we should be going, this school down the road's doing this. And it's just, you know, a little bit of calm in the noise of, right, here's some very clear things that you might want to look at, here's the evidence base for them and here's how you can use them. And this document, coupled with what I spoke to Simon about last week, about the EEF's document, are really, really important. And, you know, if we can help to signpost those and, and cut through some of the perhaps some of the myths that are being um, put out there that's really useful and thank you for yeah. coming on for helping to clear that up really appreciate no it it's a pleasure it's a pleasure and i mean like i said i also found the ef document really useful as well as one to kind of highlight and one for people to look at great thank you very much and thank you simon Thanks. for jumping in again just talking to teachers talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at pna 1977 on twitter nimmer's netter just talking to teachers 